Our Father, as we come to the portion of our service in which we study your word, we ask for the work of the Holy Spirit to be done in us, that he would give us clarity, that he would give us understanding, that he would convict us of sin, that he would reprove us where necessary. We pray, to, we pray for strength, Lord. We pray to be encouraged. We pray for hope. Hope in you. Hope in the right things. Hope in what you have to give. Hope in what you have done and what you continue to do in us. That Christ would be glorified during this time and in our lives. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 42. Uh, if you'll remember a couple weeks ago, we ended uh, at the end of Genesis chapter 42, which seemed like kind of a weird place to end. But uh, first thing to remember is that when, uh, when the books of the Bible were written, there were no verses or chapter breaks or anything like that. This was all, you know, one continuous story. The, the, the numbers uh, at the, in the margins and everything aren't inspired. So I, what I want us to see is the things that carry over from one chapter to the next, which is why I broke it up the way that I did. But we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 42, verses 37 and 38, and then we'll be going through the first 14 verses of chapter 43. A pastor down in Oregon recently blogged about a flyer that he received right around the, the time of the new year, which is when everybody's making their resolutions and uh, those of us who don't like a crowd at the gym stop going because of the crowd at the gym. But anyway, he got a flyer uh, promoting this, this local gym down in Oregon, and this is what he said. He said the, the flyer said this. It says, quote, the new year is right around the corner, and you're either going to own the new year, or the year is going to own you. It's 100% your choice. It's in your hands. That's the first thing. Simply by taking all of the responsibility and putting it on your shoulders, you become empowered. Does that sound like a gym or what? I mean, it's like, you know, pretty standard, I guess. They're, they're trying to pump you up, right? Uh, you know, I, I get it. It continues. It says, next... You take that feeling of empowerment, of invincibility, the feeling that you can run through a wall. I've never felt like that. I've never tried it. Uh, and you take action. You take action like you've never taken action before, whatever that means. You become prolific. You become consistent. And you let no obstacle stand in your way, no matter what. No more pity parties. No more whining about anything. End quote. And I mean, it's getting kind of silly at this point, right? No doubt. But uh, it ends with what is probably the most ridiculous statement of all. You, in capital letters, you are in control. And that type of, I don't know, hardcore, uh, you know, extreme attitude may appeal to the human ego. Uh, it may pump you up, but, uh, but it isn't based at least not entirely in reality, is it? I mean, we like to feel like we're in control. Anybody here struggle with that? I think we all do to an extent, right? Uh, Joseph or Jacob definitely does. Jacob apparently didn't get this flyer. He didn't need it. He already, you know, had the need to feel like he was in control. But, um, you know, as marketing experts know, uh, this is something that we all 
struggle with. It's part of the flesh nature, the desire to control things that we really can't control. And so marketing experts and, and ad agencies will design slogans that make it sound like, you know, hey, you just sign on the dotted line, you're, you're taking control, not you're surrendering control. I mean, you think of the, the old army recruiting slogan, be all you can be. Anybody remember that song? Anybody remember the jingle that they played in that commercial? I can still sing the jingle after like 30 years, 35 years. It's amazing. The slogan was just catchy. The jingle was catchy. But the idea was that if you want to get control of your life, if you want to tap into your full potential in life as a human being, you need to join the army. Now, you've got to think about who they're aiming their marketing at there. They're aiming their marketing at guys who are young adults, you know, 18 to maybe 25. And at that age, I mean, science has shown us that guys have way too much testosterone and we feel invincible and we, we make, you know, some pretty bad decisions based on that. But that's who they're trying to, to reach. Young men who feel invincible, who feel like all they need to do is get a little bit of guidance and they can conquer the world. But one of the great blessings of the Christian life is escaping the illusion of human autonomy and control. In fact, one of the primary themes of Genesis has been this. It's been God's sovereign control. And the problems that we encounter when we start to think that we are ultimately in control. We saw it repeatedly in the life of Abraham, right? Every time Abraham took his eyes off the Lord and started taking things into, you know, trying to control things that he had no ability to control. He, he slipped into sin. And we've been seeing it repeatedly in the life of Jacob as well. So today we're going to be continuing our study of Genesis, picking off where we ended up last time, where Jacob uh, felt the sting of not being in control. And the reason I say, you know, this flyer reminds me of Jacob is because it talks about how, uh, you know, no more pity parties, no more whining about anything. But, but here's Jacob, where we left off, throwing a pity party, saying, you know, uh, everything was against me. And remember, why did he feel like that? Spiritual amnesia. I mean, he knew the Lord, but he'd forgotten. And so there were some lessons in his life that he would need to learn over and over and over again, just like his grandfather Abraham. Remember, his sons had sold Joseph, their brother Joseph, into slavery in Egypt many years prior to this, about 20 years prior to this. And while in Egypt, Joseph had risen to become a very prominent leader in Egypt, second in command only after Pharaoh after not only interpreting Pharaoh's dreams about the coming famine, but also advising Pharaoh uh, on how to prepare for the famine that was coming. And that would be by storing grain during these seven years of, uh, of plenty. These seven years where, where there was an abundance of grain. So we saw that the world went into a very bad famine after those seven years of abundance. And it wasn't just Egypt. It was, it was the whole world. And so people from the surrounding nations were coming to Egypt to buy their grain because they, they needed to survive. And that was the only way they could survive. And Jacob's household was no exception here. They also had a famine in Canaan. So Jacob had sent his sons, minus Benjamin. Remember, he kept Benjamin at home. He sent his sons, minus Benjamin, down to Egypt to buy some grain for the, for the household. And while they were there... While the, the sons, the brothers are, are down there, Joseph 
sees them. And he recognizes them after, after so many years, after like 20 years. He sees them, he recognizes them, he interrogates them, accusing them of being spies. Remember, he jails them. And he sends them home to retrieve their brother, Benjamin. And he says, don't come back without your brother. And this was all the working of God's grace upon the house of Jacob. God was not only reminding Jacob once again for for the umpteenth time that God is the one who is sovereignly in control of all things, but he was also using these circumstances to break down the pride and the ego of the brothers, of Jacob's sons, showing them that they weren't in control either. And remember, it it was after they were jailed that they confessed their guilt about what they had done so many years earlier to Joseph. And it was on their journey home that they were confronted with the reality of who God is. That God is holy, that they're not, and the difference makes a problem for them as they cried out in fear, what is this that God has done to us? Jacob, of course, didn't want to send Benjamin down to Egypt with his brothers. And as a result, the brothers could not return. Joseph had warned them they would not be able to see him to buy grain if they came back without Benjamin. And so what we'll see as we finish chapter 42 and cover the first 14 verses of chapter 43 is the way that God uses various circumstances in our lives to continually remind us of our need for Him, of our need to trust in Him. And that's how spiritual amnesia is overcome. It's by God working in us. By His grace, reminding us of the lessons that we've learned so many times before, but we've forgotten. And so we need to be reminded. We need to relearn those same old lessons. So after Jacob resists the urging of his sons to send Benjamin with them down to Egypt, uh, two of his sons are going to plead with him, is what we'll we'll see today. First, Reuben uh, decides to plead with him. Let's look at verses 37 and 38 of chapter 42. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, You may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him, Benjamin, back to you. Put him in my care, and I will return him to you. But Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you're taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. In other words, I'm going to die of a broken heart if my son dies while you're on your journey. So, Reuben is the oldest of the brothers, and he makes this really unrealistic, kind of extreme offer, to say the least. Isn't it, isn't it kind of an extreme offer? You can kill my sons if I kill yours. Uh, as the oldest of the brothers, he tries to barter, basically, for Benjamin, telling his father that if he doesn't bring him back, he, you know, Jacob can put his own two grandsons to death uh, in exchange And let's remember that one of these two grandsons is probably uh, the child that Reuben conceived with Bilhah, who was Jacob's concubine. And he had an affair with her in a power play against Jacob to ensure that he would be the successor, the one to, to receive all the power and the influence and the money. 
So maybe Reuben is just trying to do the right thing here. Maybe he sees it as a chance to give his father a chance to, to take revenge. You know, maybe he's still trying to get on his father's good side. Whatever the case, it's, it's really a ridiculous offer that he puts on the table. I mean, if Benjamin gets killed, and then two of Reuben's sons gets killed, I mean, that's, that's three people that end up being killed. It's just a ridiculous offer. And Jacob sees how ridiculous it is. His response is basically to dig in his heels and say, no chance. There's no way I'm, I'm going along with, with this idea. I'd, I'd rather starve to death, is basically what he's saying, and have all the brothers starve to death with him. So it's kind of a harsh response. It's, it's, not, it's definitely not a well-thought-out response. But it shows us that even after all that God had done over the years to break Jacob to humble Jacob, to teach Jacob, to grow Jacob in his faith, Jacob still hates feeling like he's not in control of things. How many of you guys can relate? (laughs) I didn't mean for hands to go up, but my hand would definitely go up there too. I think it's something that we all struggle with because we all have what's called a flesh nature. And so the flesh nature is constantly opposed to the work of God in our lives. And because it's always there, the flesh is always there. We are inclined to try to control things that really we, we know if we sit there and think about it. We know we have no control over. But what we need to see here is that it's the grace of God that's brought Jacob to this point where he's trying to, to, to hold on to anything and everything that he can control. And yet God is gently and slowly just, just prying his fingers open. You ever do that with a, with a child? You, know, you just gently pry their fingers open because they don't want to let go of something. And God's doing that with Jacob in such a, a gentle and, and graceful way. There's, there's nothing that Jacob can do to make it stop. What grace that God would so slowly and so gradually bring Jacob to the point where Jacob's only option, again, as he's learned so many times before, his only option is to trust God. And that's a great place to be. Where that's your only option. And yet what a painful journey for us. What a painful experience for us that can be because our flesh, even after we've been walking for, for years with the Lord, I mean years, 50 years, 70 years, it doesn't matter. It's still hard for us because our flesh still tempts us to resist the working and the will of God in our lives. And it's only by His grace that it continues. We forget all the things that He's graciously and providentially taught us along the way. So specifically, how does Jacob resist God here? He does it by really putting off what's inevitable. He, he, he delays, he procrastinates what, what is absolutely, positively, no doubt about it, going to happen. He just sits on it and decides, I'm not going to do anything about this. They need food. All of them, including Benjamin, or they're going to die. They're going to die of starvation. And in his defiance, Jacob forbids his sons from doing what they had promised Joseph that they would do. 
and from doing what's necessary, by the way, remember, to free Simeon. Remember, Joseph had taken Simeon captive. He bound him in front of the brothers and promised that that's what was going to be the situation until they returned with Benjamin. So by resisting God's work and will here, Jacob is only making a crisis situation worse. Think about this. Think, contrast his delay, his, his procrastination with Joseph's willingness to get to work when he knew what was going on. I mean, Joseph, when, as soon as he knew that there was a famine coming in seven years, he says, we need to start preparing today. Contrast that with Joseph, or with Jacob, who says, no, you can't take Benjamin. Maybe we'll just starve to death. There's a, there's a, there's a contrast there. This blows my mind. When the author of Hebrews, you know, he's going through this, this laundry list of, of um, you know, people, the, the, the great faith of the early saints. He says all these great things about Abel, about Enoch, about Abraham. Abraham gets a couple paragraphs, basically. He says some very positive things about Isaac's faith. But listen to what he says, what the author of Hebrews says when he gets to Jacob. And this is all that he says about Jacob. One sentence, Hebrews 11.21. He says, By faith Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. Honestly, that, that just blows my mind. I, I can't believe it. I can't, I can't believe that this is the only time that Jacob sets an example of godly faith out of all the years and all the things that he does. This is the only one that's worthy of mention. And it comes at the very end of his life while he's basically got one foot in the grave. We might be tempted to think, you know, as, we, as we've gotten to know Jacob, you might be tempted to think, well, what kind of an example is he? Well, he would be a negative example, kind of. Uh, don't be like him in, in a lot of ways. But at the same time, it's not about him. God's using him to show his own faithfulness. God's using him to show God's faithfulness. And it reminds us, his story, Jacob's story, reminds us of God's faithfulness. Even after all these years, 50 plus years, Jacob's still a work in progress. Does that surprise you? Would you think that 50 years after you first became a Christian, you'd just about be there? And yet, the longer we walk with the Lord, the more we realize how far away it is. How far away it is. And it's something we can't even come close to possibly doing on our own. That's why it's only by, by grace. It's only by the grace of God. Even after all these years. God has promised that in progress. And we can take hope in that because it reminds us of the fact that God has promised that He will complete the work in us that He began. He's a God who completes everything that He begins. He doesn't just leave a work sitting there indefinitely without coming back to it. And sometimes it feels like we're waiting for Him to come back to us. But the truth is, He's there all along. But he will complete the work that he began, despite our resistance, our resistance, despite our efforts to resist him all along the way. 
But it should also remind us that no matter how long we've been walking with the Lord, we still need His grace in each and every moment of life. We never outgrow our need for grace. Does that surprise you? You're never going to outgrow it. You're going to need it every second for the rest of your life, just like you always have. We don't outgrow that need. And the good news is God never runs out of grace to lavish upon His children. And so He continues lavishing us with His grace, pouring His grace out upon us, transforming us along this journey, breaking us, humbling us, teaching us the same lessons over and over and over again. So we're going to see that God is working in this situation to break uh, Jacob's will, humbling him again before the Lord. Let's continue looking at verses 1 to 14 of chapter 43. It says, Now the famine was severe in the land. So it came about when they had finished eating the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. Judah spoke to him, however, saying, This man solemnly warned us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you do not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You will not see my face unless your brother is with you. Then Israel, remember that. Then Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly by telling the man whether you still had another brother? But they said, the man questioned particularly about us and our relatives, saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So we answered his questions. Could we possibly know that he would say, bring your brother down? Judah said to his father Israel, send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, we as well as you and our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. For if we had not delayed, surely by now we could have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags and carry down to the man as a present a little balm and a little honey, aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brothers also and arise. Return to the man and may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man so that he will release to you your older brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So this chapter starts off by reminding us that the famine wasn't just in Egypt, it was over all the land. It was severe everywhere you went. Food was scarce. The options were not many. They were few and and far between. And when the household of Jacob finally reaches a crisis point, as they eat the last of the grain that the sons had brought back from Egypt with them, and, and Jacob I don't know how to describe what, what he's doing here. He, he, he's kind of speaking begrudgingly and, and shyly, like he knows better. He knows that he shouldn't even be asking this question. But he says, go back, buy us a little food. 
a little food. They've got a big household, right? I mean, do you see how he phrased that? There are dozens of people in their house, and they need more than just a little food. But the way he does it, he's so casual, he's so begrudging, it's kind of like, son, go down to 7-Eleven and get me a bag of chips. Like, like what's that going to do, right? So why does he say it like this? What, what's going on here in Jacob's mind? Well, it seems to me that he's trying to convince his sons to go back down to Egypt, but to try to sneak in without being noticed. In other words, don't buy so much grain that they'll notice you. In other words, go in unnoticed. Go in without, being, without drawing attention to yourselves. Because Jacob's hope is to keep Benjamin home still. So what's he doing here? First, he, he delayed God's work by procrastinating, by putting off uh, taking any kind of action. Now he's resisting God's work by downplaying the severity of his need. You see that? He's, he's downplaying the severity. First he procrastinated, now he's downplaying the severity of the, of the need that all of them have. And so at this point, Judah steps up and he deals with his father's ridiculous request, insisting that he and the brothers won't go down to Egypt without Benjamin. I mean, what would happen if they went down without him? Well, we know that for sure that they wouldn't see Joseph, they wouldn't get Simeon freed, and they'd all end up starving to death. And the journey would all be for nothing. So Jacob's stubbornness is once again just exacerbating what's already a difficult situation. And he does it this time by downplaying his need. So we saw the first way that Jacob resisted God's work, was procrastinating, putting off what was inevitable, and now he's downplaying his need. But he resists in a different way. Again, a third way, he starts playing the blame game. He says, it's your fault. You guys are the ones who answered his question when he asked if he had another brother. You ever been tempted to play the blame game? We're all pretty quick to do it, I think. It's something that we just do in the flesh. Again, it's something that we do in the flesh. Let's blame somebody else. I mean, if you look at politicians, that's their modus operandi right operandi they 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 love to play the blame game it was the democrats fault the democrats say no it was the republicans fault and nobody gets anything done because they're just playing the blame game you know somebody does something it's innocent enough but somehow it ends up putting your back up against the wall not that they could have possibly foreseen but it puts your back up against the wall and so you start wondering why didn't that person know the future infallibly why why didn't this person have god's you know omniscience in this situation i mean he may as well have, have said to his sons hey guys didn't one of you guys bring your crystal ball didn't one of you guys think about looking into the crystal ball and seeing what the future holds i mean that's how ridiculous it is for him to play the blame game here but why is this all happening? Jacob's sons, Jacob says that it's his sons' fault because they were the ones that told this powerful Lord in Egypt that they had a brother. Why did they have to do that, he's thinking. It's all their fault. Not so fast, they say. They all jump on him. No, we had no way of knowing that he was going to make this demand that we leave one brother down there and come back and get Benjamin. They had no way. They, they were just trying to answer the question as honestly as they possibly could. 
There's a first, right? So Judah keeps his cool. Again, he's stepping up here as as a godly leader. He keeps his cool with Jacob, and he persists in his attempts to, to persuade his father to send Benjamin with him, saying that he would personally take responsibility for Benjamin's safe return, or or what? Or Judah will willfully bear the wrath of his father for the rest of his life. It's at least a little bit more reasonable than Reuben's offer, right? You, you, know, you can murder my sons if I don't bring Benjamin back. But Judah really steps up here as as a a leader of the brothers. And we'll see when we get to the passages uh, in the chapters to come that this really serves as the beginning of Judah becoming a very godly man and a very godly leader. God is working mightily in Judah. And so finally, Jacob's in a situation where he, he has to take the offer and he knows it. He's finally convinced. He finally resigns himself to the will of God as he comes to his senses and realizes, okay, we're out of food. We are officially out of food. This is my only option. He's lost control. Or did he ever have it? I mean, isn't that what this is really all about? It's been about Jacob trying to control things that really only God can control. But what grace that he comes to the point where he realizes that this situation is completely outside of his ability to control. But in the same breath, it's kind of funny. There's kind of a a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde phenomenon going on here. At the same time that he is exercising great faith and saying, okay, go ahead and and take Benjamin and go do what you need to do. In the same breath, (laughs) the same old swindling, scheming Jacob comes up, urging his sons, bring all this stuff as gifts. Try to, try to get on the good side of this, this powerful Lord down in Egypt. He's still trying a little bit to control. But here's his final wish as he sends his sons off. And this is awesome. He says, may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man. That's a term that we have not seen often enough in Jacob's life. God Almighty. Notice that that as he's giving these final instructions and blessing to them, he's referred to by an old name that we haven't seen very much either. Israel. He's referred to as Israel. Do you remember how he got that name? I mean, if you go back several chapters, we saw Jacob about to be confronted he's about to go toe-to-toe with his brother Esau and he's terrified because Esau had vowed to murder him years earlier when Jacob had stolen the father, their father's blessing from him and Esau had become this rich and powerful man in the years following and what could be worse than facing somebody who's not only rich and not only powerful but also angry so there was Jacob out of options like he is here Same thing back then, out of options, in the middle of the night, before he comes face to face with his brother Esau. When in the darkness of the night by the Jabbok River, a hand reaches out and grabs him and wrestles Jacob to the ground. And Jacob wrestles all night with this stranger. And as the sun rose, the stranger, who was actually the Lord, by the way, it was was the pre-incarnate Christ, did two things. First of all, he touched Jacob's hip. 
Remember that? He touched his hip, and with, with just the slightest touch, Jacob's hip was wounded so badly that he would walk around with a limp for the rest of his days. That was the first thing that happened that night. The second thing that happened is the Lord gave him a new name. Israel. Israel, which means prevails with God. Jacob needed to come to the end of himself on that night. He needed to come to the point where he could clearly see that his only option was to trust the Lord. And that night of wrestling was indeed a valuable lesson, but wouldn't you have thought that this would have been a serious turning point for Jacob? I mean, wouldn't you think, if you were the one writing this story, wouldn't you think that in the years that followed that incident, that this would have been a daily reminder for him and that it would have kept him humble. It would have reminded him of the fact that he needed to be trusting the Lord. I mean, it should have been a reminder with every single step that he took because his hip was out of place. But the sins that he wrestled with before that night, he continued to wrestle with in his flesh for the rest of his days, for the rest of his life. Jacob did learn his lesson back then, but here he is, acting as if there was never any lesson for him to learn. He had to learn that lesson over and over and over again. Look at it this way. After Abram, not Abraham, but after Abram had his name changed by the Lord to Abraham, he was never referred to as Abram again. And yet, even after being renamed Israel on that night, Jacob continued to be referred to primarily as Jacob, even though he had a new name. Why? Because he still had the same old tendencies, the same self-centered, self-preserving, self-gratifying tendencies that he had always, always had. A new creation with old habits, old sins. But today, on this day, as he sends his sons back down to Egypt, he's not referred to as Jacob here. No, this is Israel. This is the new man. This is the new creation. This is the man who learned to trust in the Lord rather than trusting in himself. And he had to learn this lesson over and over again. It's Israel who calls upon God Almighty here. That's El Shaddai. That's a significant detail. He, he reaches the end of himself and he remembers, oh, I, I can't control everything. That's right, I forgot. I can't control everything. I'm weak. I'm frail. And so he had to look to the one and to trust in the one who is sovereign over all. The God who speaks things into existence out of nothing. The one of whom Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. Jeremiah says this, It is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom, and by His understanding He has stretched out the heavens. When He utters His voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and He causes the clouds to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and brings out the wind from his storehouses. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a God who's sovereign over all things. It sounds like a God that I could trust. Or listen to the words of Job. 
Job writes this, It is God who removes the mountains, they know not how, when He overtakes them in His anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its, and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun not to shine and sets a seal upon the stars, who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea, who makes the bear, Orion, and Pleiades, and the chambers of the south, who does great things, unfathomable, and wondrous works without number. What a great grace-driven thing it is when we come to see God this way. When we come to see that we can fully trust in God Almighty to do what only God Almighty can do despite the resistance of our flesh. This is a God you can trust. This is a God you must trust, especially when you're in a situation that you are unable to control or constrain. Look at the way that Jacob, for you know how many times now, look at how he learns to trust God Almighty wholeheartedly. He says, as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. In other words, he realizes he has no other options. What what else can he say? What what else can he do? I mean, this is an old believer with with a newfound faith again. And so he succumbs to the fact that if he has to grieve, so be it. He has to grieve. It's that or everyone dies. What will it take to bring Jacob to the point where he'll surrender his will, he'll surrender himself to the will of God. Like, I think it kind of starts with the loss of Joseph, but then a severe famine, uh, having very little food, eventually running out of food, running out of the grain that his sons had brought back from their first trip to Egypt, and then feeling the loss of Simeon, fearing the loss that he was going to lose Benjamin, and then finally the promise of Judah. And finally, Jacob says, okay. He finally surrenders, but reluctantly. You ever done that? Surrendered reluctantly? Because it was all you could do? Have you ever been brought to the end of the ability of your flesh in which your only option is to trust God with what only God can do? Man, that's a It's a hard place to be, isn't it? And we all know it. Because we've all been there. You know, it's easier, our flesh thinks anyway, that it's easier to procrastinate or to downplay our need or to play the blame game. Some people will even blame God. And we're more inclined in our flesh to resist sometimes then we are to just surrender ourselves fully to God and let God do what only God is capable of doing. Maybe your marriage was falling apart and you got to the point where you realized that there was nothing that you could do, only God could bring it back together. Maybe you had a wayward child who walked away from the Lord and there's only so much you can do as a parent. Maybe you were facing unemployment or or eviction. Maybe you got a medical diagnosis or maybe a loved one 
got some kind of severe medical diagnosis. And when, whatever it is, when you looked at the situation, you realized, man, there's really just nothing I can do here. There's nothing, I've already done everything that I can do. So I'm down to just no options other than trusting God to do what only God is able to do. You know, this all started with, with Jacob feeling like everything was against him. And, and we can't exactly fault him for feeling like that because there really were some things that were against him. The world, the devil, the flesh. But what do you do when you feel like that? What do you do when, when you get spiritual amnesia? When you want to control things, but you realize, oh man, I'm learning this lesson again. What do you do? Well, I think it's safe to say that we're, we're being shown what not to do here. As, as Jacob's example, don't wait to trust the Lord to do what only the Lord can do. Don't procrastinate doing what's inevitable. Don't downplay your need for God's grace. Don't play the blame game. Don't try to control and manipulate circumstances that are just way bigger than you are. If God has brought you into deep or troubling circumstances, know this, He's not just going to leave you there. In Psalm 23, when He goes into the shadow of the valley of death, He goes with the shepherd. The shepherd is with Him. God is not going to bring you to a difficult situation and just leave you there to figure it out for yourself. So remember that He's with you. Remember that He is for you. Remember that there is no sense in wrestling against the God who is sovereign over all things. It does no good to wait to resign yourself to the will of God. It just makes your life more complicated. Do you believe that God is for you? Jacob did. Jacob did believe that God was for him, but then he forgot. And then he was reminded. And then he forgot again. And he had to be reminded over and over and over again. And this is one of the great things that Scripture does It has themes that run through books, like we've seen this theme running through Genesis, where we see the same lesson in different contexts, because that's how our brains learn. And so we're reminded of the same thing over and over and over again, because we're so prone to forget, aren't we? I mean, sometimes it takes me less than a minute to forget. Isn't that crazy? Less than a minute. And Scripture reminds us over and over again of God's goodness, yes, but more than that, it also reminds us that God is sovereignly in control. And it would be a disaster if it were any other way, wouldn't it? What happens when we forget? Well, one of the things that happens is we start being controlled by irrational fears. I mean, Jacob has some irrational fears here, doesn't he? He's he's not really thinking this situation through. I think that's one of the reasons that he was trying to control things that he has no control over because he's got these irrational fears of losing Benjamin. When Benjamin's going to, he's going to lose Benjamin anyway if they all starve to death. And I don't mean to imply that he shouldn't have been a good steward of of Benjamin as his son. Uh, He shouldn't, I'm not saying he shouldn't have protected Benjamin, but ultimately he was going to lose Benjamin anyway if they didn't act. 
And so his fears became irrational. And he was being controlled here by his fears. He's being controlled by fear when he should have just trusted God to do what only God can do. And likewise for us, you know, we, we, we want to be good stewards with what we have. We want to take care of the things that we've been given. But that doesn't mean, um, you know, not, uh, not stepping out in faith from time to time. Because there are certain things that are going to happen no matter what we do. And when fear starts being our motivation for acting, if fear becomes our motivation for stewardship, we need to remember that God is sovereign and God is good. We need to be reminded over and over and over again because that's the only way we learn. And we're so quick to forget. Being reminded regularly of who God is and what He's done for us is one of the main reasons, I would say, to, to subject yourselves, to subject ourselves to Bible study on a regular basis. And gathering with the saints is, is one of those places that we do that. But being reminded of, of what God can do and, and who God is has at least four things that it does for us. And I'll, I'll close with this. It does at least four things. First of all, it stirs up within us a sense of gratitude. It stirs up a sense of gratitude when we're reminded. Because we see God's grace acting when in our flesh we were just being forgetful. Forgetful is something that we've learned a hundred times, right? I mean, think about the psalmist in Psalm 105. He, he starts Psalm 105 by saying, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. He goes on to say in verses 4 and 5, Seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His face continually. Remember His wonders which He has done, His marvels and the judgments uttered by His mouth. Praise Him in the present as you remember what He's done in the past. Or in Isaiah, God instructs the prophet to instruct the people, give thanks to the Lord, call on His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, make them remember that His name is exalted. That's from Isaiah chapter 12, verse 4. See, there's a connection between remembering who God is and what God has done, and being thankful. Secondly, it provokes repentance. Being reminded provokes repentance. It's easy for us to just coast through life and feel like we're in control of things, but we need to be reminded that ultimately we don't control life or death or the things that seem so important to us. God is the one who ordains all things which come to pass. And so we need to repent. We need to, to change from being people who feel like we're in control to being people who want to be good stewards but realize that God is ultimately the one who's in control. I'm convinced that the reason that Christians don't mourn over their sin when they don't mourn over their sin is because we can't mourn over things that we aren't even mindful of. We can't mourn over things that we forget. We can't grieve over things that don't even come to our minds with a godly grief 
that leads to life-giving grace. Think of Peter and how he grieved his betrayal of Christ with bitter tears upon being reminded by the rooster's crow that Jesus knew that Peter was going to forsake him, betray him three times prior to that moment that night. So remembering provokes thankfulness, it provokes repentance. Third, it keeps us humble. Being reminded of who God is and what God can do keeps us humble. It's natural. It's kind of automatic because of our flesh nature to take as much credit for our success as we possibly can, which can in turn inflate the ego, inflate a person's sense of pride, but remembering that it is God Almighty who gives and who takes away. That it's God who ordains all things that come to pass. It's like a pin being thrust into an overinflated balloon. Being reminded of God's greatness and of our necessity of, of, of trusting Him more fully keeps us grounded. It keeps us humble. Fourth and finally, being reminded of our great need for God and His grace helps us to grow in faith and obedience. These are some of the reasons that the Israelites would be instructed to remember what the Lord had done for their people. And when they'd go into exile, you know, they, they'd forget. It would be because they, they had forgotten the Lord. You know, the, the book of Judges. You know, they, they come back to the Lord and they forget. And what happens? They, they go into exile. They, they, they get taken captive by the people of the land. When we forget, we become prone to drift. We see that in Jacob. We, we see it all through Judges. It's one of the themes of Judges. But all we have to really do is look in the mirror, right? Because we see it in ourselves. That when we forget, we are prone to drift. But we also remember that God is faithful to remember us even when we forget. And even though we need to be taught the same lessons over and over and over again throughout our sanctification. We're reminded that God is constantly mindful of us. And yet for those who will trust in His Son, Jesus Christ, He makes this promise in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Is that weird that He does it for His sake? I mean, wouldn't we be inclined to think he's doing it for our sake? But he says no. He does it for his sake. He remembers our sins no longer for those who are in Christ. But I also have to warn you that without Christ, you have to understand that God remains perfectly aware, perfectly mindful of your sin because the debt of your sin has not been paid without Christ. So I urge you to come and to believe in Christ, to place saving faith in Christ, to repent and to believe in order that you may receive His justifying righteousness, which includes this promise for the forgiveness of sins. This promise that the sins that He holds against you right now because you are not in Christ, He'll forget about He'll take your debt. 
and he'll put it on Christ who paid our debt in full. God uses our circumstances to continually, over and over again, remind us of our great need to trust in Him. And not with a begrudging trust, not with a half-hearted trust, as if everything in life is against us, but with great hope, And with great rejoicing in our hearts, praising the God who is causing all things to work for His glory and for the good of His people. Let's pray. Most gracious Father, we confess to You that we are so prone to forget. We thank You for all the lessons that You've taught us through our circumstances and through Your Word and all the things that we've picked up along the way up to this point. But we confess to You, Lord, that when Monday comes around, it's so easy to forget. But we thank You that You don't just leave us in our circumstances, but that You stay with us. You come with us into the deep waters. You come with us into the storms of life. And you use those circumstances to teach us the same old lessons and to grow our faith and to grow us in the likeness of Christ. Father, as we prepare to close today, please stir up conviction in our heart of any sins that we need to to turn from, any lessons that we may have forgotten along the way, that we may live our lives for the glory of Christ, that we may strive for holiness, for the holiness without which no one will see you. We pray, Lord, that our lives would be a testimony of your grace and your patience with us. We pray, God, that you would continue working in us. We thank you for the assurance that you will complete the work that you have begun. And we pray that, Lord, we would just keep growing in faith to trust you with the things that only you can do. To trust that whatever may come, you are sovereign over it all. And you're good. You're good. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths 
in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.